Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 12th, 2019, and this is show number 731. Well, first of all, let me give a big shout-out to all of the mothers out there. Whether you bore your own child, adopted, or acted as a mom to someone who needed you, I want to wish you all a happy Mother's Day. I'd also like to give a big cheer for the 14-year anniversary of the NoSillaCast coming up tomorrow on Monday, the 13th of May. In 2005, I sat down in front of a microphone hooked up to a 15-inch PowerBook running GarageBand and made my first podcast episode of what I then called the NoSilla Podcast, or NoSillaCast for short. Well, Chuck Joyner had me on Mac Voices this week for his series he calls Road to Mac Stock. He asked me on to explain what I'll be presenting at the show. It's very timely with the 14th anniversary because my presentation is all about how technology created a community. In other words, it's about how Steve and I became friends with you. Without the NoSillaCast in our lives, those lives would be ever so much smaller. Whether you've just dropped me a note to say you like the show or done a listener contribution, maybe sent it a dumb question or sent me a correction where I said something dumb, or maybe you're a Patreon member or you contribute or lurk in our Facebook or Slack communities, or if you're an all-on-out fan by being a weekly attendee of the live show, you have all enriched my life. If you want to hear more about it, you can check out the link in the show notes to macvoices.com. I'll be talking about that at MacStock, and I would love it if you could be there. If you haven't signed up for MacStock and you can figure out a way to get yourself to the Chicago area for the weekend of July 27th and 28th, you can get a ticket for 70 bucks off the full price of a two-day weekend pass if you use the coupon code PODFEET. That brings the price down to only 179 bucks for two days of amazing instruction and a chance to increase your community of friends in the nerdiest of places. I really hope you'll get there so we can meet in person and you can keep enriching this life that Steve and I have built around the NoSillaCast. Whether you've been here a day, a month, a year, or more than a decade, I want to thank you for listening and staying subscribed. Well, I took a week off from Chit Chat Across the Pond to go down to San Diego and see Lindsay for Mother's Day. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled program next week. Speaking of slacking off right here after talking about how uh, long of a great run we've had of the NoSillaCast, next Sunday we will be in Fresno attending a graduation party. So the live show will not be on Sunday night. We're going to push it out into Monday, May 20th. It'll still be at 5 p.m. Pacific time, and I hope we'll still see at least some of you there. Mark your calendars now. Every time I produce a video tutorial for Screencast Online, I tell you that it's amazing. Nothing like tooting your own horn, right? But this time, I really mean it. My latest tutorial is on Text Expander, the amazing text expansion tool for the Mac from TextExpander.com. Their latest subscription-based version 6 of the software has many very advanced features from the old standalone version 5. I knew I wasn't using it to its full potential, and the best way I know of to learn a tool is to have to teach it. Now, the problem is that I know the audience is made up of people who've never used Text Expander, many of whom maybe have tried it but couldn't seem to remember the abbreviations for the snippets they've created, and then there's the people who've been using Text Expander for ages and already love it, but maybe there's things they don't yet know that it can do. Because of the very different levels of viewers, I took a different approach to teaching a text expander. I started very slowly, describing the different elements of the tool interface, and I created the simplest possible snippet, an abbreviation to type out my name. 
From there, I started ramping it up really quickly to show the more advanced features. For example, did you know that you can nest snippets inside one of another? I demonstrated how I can have a snippet for just my name, but then a signature snippet that includes the name snippet. How about this? Did you know you can embed dates in snippets? Oh, well, all right. If you knew that, how about the fact that you can do date math like you can say last month and it'll figure that out? Did you know you can embed shell script, JavaScript, and Apple script? Anyway, I taught some really cool ways to help you find the snippets you've created without having to remember them and without ever lifting your hands from the keyboard. This tutorial really flowed well, and I, I think it's one of the best ones I've done. I hope you'll consider going over to Screencast Online and check out the free seven-day trial of the service, which gives you access to the back catalog and, of course, my tutorial on Text Expander. I put a link to the teaser video on Podfeet so you can see the introduction to get you really excited about it. At the risk of needing to rebrand the NoSilicast as having an ever-so-slight Windows bias, I actually want to talk about a really big announcement coming out of Microsoft this week. They announced that Windows 10 will soon ship with a full, open-source, GPL'd Linux kernel. Now, I've read a bit about it, including a really great article by Ars Technica, but I thought it would be way more fun to bring in Bart Bouchatz to help us understand why this is so cool. Now, I want to warn you guys, I asked him to do this on the fly, so don't expect any show notes about this. This is going to be off the top of our heads. So that person snickering in the background, that would be you, Bart? That, that would indeed be me. And I, I think my you said, do you want to record? And I said, on the condition I can do no prep and have no notes. Yeah. So here I am. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So from, the, from the, the baseline of what I can understand, Microsoft has been working towards this, and, and they've had a thing called the Windows subsystem for Linux in the past, but something they announced this week made this go way up a notch, a real full-fledged kernel. Can you explain to us what that actually means? Oh, well, let's, let's backtrack a little. So many, 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 many moons ago, back in the days of NT4, do you know that Microsoft used to actually have multiple versions of their own kernel so that you could run Windows NT4 on, um, oh, what are they called? Deck Alphas. Um, you could run it on Alpha. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so I remember running Windows on Alphas. And then hmm. they sort of got all a bit, I don't know, they just got all in on x86 and Intel, and they just became their partnership, and that was the end of it running on deck or on anything that wasn't Intel. And we got into this very bland period where, I sort of call it the bomber period, where it was <laughs> everything, everything must be made Windows, and Windows must be made everything, right? So right. that was a complete fixation, and that's completely changed now that they've moved into cloud services. Because if you want to be the biggest cloud provider in the world, you cannot say, please use our cloud. Oh, yeah. And we demand in order to use our cloud that you pay us a license for our software, too. Because right. you're never going to be a major cloud provider. So most of the servers are, are on Linux, right? Yeah. So on, that run the Internet? Pretty much. And so when you, like we, with my work hat on, we use Microsoft's cloud services for a bunch of stuff. And when you go into Azure, there's a button there that says make new VM. And it says what flavor Linux, you know, is one of the options. I mean, obviously, if you, you can get Windows 2, of course. But since Sachin Adela has been, he, he's now running Microsoft, all of it. But he used to run their Azure stuff. That was, that's his background before he became CEO. And it went from, we're going to stop litigating against Linux. Because Microsoft were actually trying to sue Linux out of existence for a long time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they went from, let's just stop doing that, to... 
let's dip our toe in the water and contribute to the odd open source project to we're now hosting your Linux for you. I actually sat in a room where a Microsoft guy put up a slide with a Linux penguin and went, no, 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 seriously, we've changed. (laughs) And so now when you log into Azure to spin up resources, I mean, Linux is, is an equal citizen with everything else they do in Azure. And so you don't get the feeling that there's any sort of, it's not like they're reluctantly letting you do it. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're all game on this. And then a f- it must be two years ago now, um, they announced WSL, Windows Subsystem for Linux, which initially it was for nerds by nerds. You used to have to enable developer mode on Windows to get to this. And then it was an, op- so you enable developer mode and then you did an optional install. And then you got the ability to run a Linux command line and only a Linux command line from your Windows 10 machine. And then with the last, so 2018.09, they rejiggered WSL to make it much easier for human beings to use. So it's still an optional install, but it's a little one-liner to enable it. So it is a one-liner that they make you do in PowerShell for some reason. But I guess if you're going to get a bash terminal... PowerShell shouldn't scare you. And it's literally just a one-liner in PowerShell. And they even my, give it to can you. It, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think at, at this stage in the plot, you had to actually install Linux. It didn't. That didn't make Linux exist, correct? Well, no. So, right. So, it was always a two... Okay, what I... I didn't actually ever do it myself in the very early versions of WSL because it was, you know, enabled developer mode and stuff. I just couldn't be bothered. But as of the last creators update, so 2018-09, they changed mm-hmm. how it works. So you can, you can try it yourself if you like. You can go into the Microsoft Store or the Windows Store and you can search for Linux or Ubuntu and you'll actually have five or six Linux distros to choose from that appear as okay. apps. And you download okay. them, you click, but we're well, not buy. It's whatever their free equivalent of buy. You know, you know, Apple says get. I can't remember Go, what verb yeah, they get use. Something. Yeah, but it's basically okay. the buy without paying any money button. Mm-hmm. And then a window will pop up that is with the Ubuntu logo, and it looks like it wants to be a bash prompt, and it will say you don't have the Windows subsystem for Linux installed yet, and then it gives you a Microsoft dot ak. You know, one of those really short Microsoft URLs. Yeah. Uh huh. And you go there and you just copy and paste the one line of PowerShell and that inst- that enables the WSL. And then you reboot and then you open the app again and hey presto, you have a bash prompt staring at you. Okay. So not So that's where you stand today, right? System. So before today's announcement, this is what you can do right now today. So you now have now, one, two or a few different flavors. Now, from what I read in the Ars Technica article, you didn't have any drivers for Linux, though, specifically file system drivers. Right. So what the way, the way this worked, the way WSL works today is it's a translation layer. So hmm. the Windows, every operating system has the thing called a kernel, which is like the kernel of a fruit or something. It's the very, 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 very center of the OS. And it offers out an API, and that API, to some extent, is really what makes the OS the OS. And the Windows NT kernel is really what's at the heart of Windows 10, right? I mean, okay, it's been updated a bit, but it's effectively the NT kernel deep down in there. Okay. That kernel can do pretty much everything Linux can do. It just does it differently. It speaks a different language. So just like you can... 
in French, you can express everything you need to describe how to bake a cake. Well, you can express everything you need how to bake a cake in German as well, and in, and in Italian and in English. It's, but it's different. So what WSL does is it translates Linux API calls to Windows NT style API calls. And so the Bash shell thinks it's asking the Linux kernel for something. WSL simply flicks through its, you know, Linux to Windows translator and then makes the same call in Windows speak to the Windows kernel. And then the Windows kernel does its thing. So that's not super efficient. It's a lot more efficient than emulation. So okay. Okay. So it's better than a, well, how about versus a virtual machine? It's completely different to a virtual machine because a virtual machine, you're doing it in hardware, right? A virtual machine, you have two operating systems sharing hardware. Um, at these days... But one is subservient to the other. Okay, but these days, there's actually hardware support for virtualization. So our actual yeah, CPU chips... Right. So the, the, the subservient, yes, but it's not that the other is doing it on its behalf. It's actually the, okay. the, the master operating system puts itself in ring zero which is like the highest privilege, and it says to the chip, go do what that guy tells you unless I tell you otherwise. Okay, okay. And so you're actually so, in direct control of the hardware now in a virtual machine, but with the right. supervision, which is why they call it a hypervisor, right? So the host OS is acting as a hypervisor, but you're actually a virtual machine is really running on the hardware. So you have emulations okay. where you just pretend to be another machine. So DOSBox is an emulator which lets you run the old DOS games. They have massive overheads, but it doesn't matter because if you're emulating DOS and even the poopiest modern machine, <laughs> no problem. So the translation is more efficient than an emulator by quite a bit. It's, it's also what makes Wine and Crossover and those kind of products work. Same idea that we translate from so one API. Let me ask a question. Though. Why would somebody use a Windows subsystem for Linux that's doing this translation if they could do a virtual machine? Uh, because a virtual machine means that you're then, you have to, okay, so you get the advantage of having direct access to the hardware and the disadvantage of having to actually say, and this piece of RAM over here, that belongs in that VM. I've now lost that RAM. Uh, only We're, when you're running the VM. Right. But if the VM needs 1K of RAM and you have conf configured the one VM, <laughs> you can't configure it with 1K of RAM. So yeah. you're, it is wasteful, right? Running a full yeah, okay. VM... Okay. So it might end up with four gig when you only have eight gig and now you've got half as, it's just not any good. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. So that, that was okay. true of a traditional VM. There can be some jiggery pokery, which we'll get to. But so a traditional VM is much more overhead, right? It's a much bigger deal than just translating the APIs. So if you just right. want to be able to space and all kinds of things, yeah. you have to. So build if you just want an SSH and... server or an SSH client on Windows, the absolute easiest way to do it is to just stick the Ubuntu subsystem on it. It's only it was only a two hundred meg download, like it's not even big. And then you mm. have okay. you know you have your your full Bash. So a you can just run your Bash scripts, and your C drive mm -hmm. gets automatically mounted. So it's slash mnt slash c. So slash mnt is where Linux normally mounts things. So that's sort of the first place I went to look. I said, I wonder, is it in Mount? Oh, look, there it is, C, into C, and I can see everything. So, you know, I can just run my normal bash scripts. I can SSH the things. I can start an SSH server. So I can work away so on the command line like to be I solved? on a cloud VM. Okay. So what problem was there to be solved that they solved this week? Right. So the this translating of, of, of API calls means you can't do lower level things like drivers because you're not a real kernel. You're, you're translating to the Windows kernel. So how can a Linux driver be in the Windows kernel? It, it, it doesn't fit, right? There's just no way mm -hmm. to make that go. 
So that meant that whenever Linux wanted to write to the file system, the translation error had to pretend it was a Linux file system, but it was really an NTFS file system. And so there was a lot of pretending and translating, and the end result was that read and write from the hard drive were 20 times slower from the WSL than from Windows. Hmm. Okay. Now, if you were running real Linux on a real machine or VM, you would ha- you would load the Linux driver for Microsoft's file system, and you would not have this horrible penalty. And maybe yeah, twenty times ha- that you'd notice twenty times. <laughs> well, I mean, you'd only notice twenty times if you were doing I/O, right? I was, I was, you know, playing about with SSH and stuff, and it did, didn't notice it at all. But if I was doing, because it was just text, FFmpeg, I think I'd notice. Mm. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay. And you want to be able to do all that cool command line stuff, right? FFmpeg and all those kind of really powerful tools. That's why you want this Linux subsystem. You want to have access to everything we've done in Taming the Terminal. Like you just get, mm-hmm. basically, the whole of Taming the Terminal just gets teleported into Windows. Yes. So anyway, right. so what they've done with WSL2 is they've so, they're solving the same problem in the sense that we want people to be able to run all the Linux coolness on Windows, but we want it to be with less penalty. So they have actually written a Linux kernel designed to plug into Windows. Now, deep, deep, deep down under the hood, it is actually using virtualization technology. So I said that the chip has hardware support for virtualization. It's not virtualization in the sense of like a full VMware-style VM, but it is virtualization in the sense that the Linux subsystem gets to talk to the, gets to share the physical hardware with the Windows system. So it's actually two kernels running. A really? Windows kernel and a Linux kernel. So they're both actually running on the hardware level. Which okay. means which means that you can install standard Linux drivers. Which means that you lose your penalty for accessing NTFS. And if you have a partition on that machine that's in EXT3 or some or EXT4 or one of the Linux file systems, no problem. You can use that Linux driver too. Wait, you can use the Linux driver for that that file uh, file yeah. system format, you mean? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you have an old Linux drive lying around, and you shove it into a drive caddy, and now you, now you can access it through your Windows subsystem for Linux. Oh, that's interesting. Right, and I mean, I'm sure there's a million and one other reasons you might want kernel drivers, um, but that's just what just immediately comes to me off the top of my head. They're also big, big, big deal here, open sourcing all of this. So the GPL insists you do, and they're entirely keeping with that. So all this entire new Linux kernel is being open sourced. And they're making it, they're, they're, they're using um, Linux 2.9, whereas the WSL1 is Linux 2.4, which is six years old. And they've promised to ah, keep okay. it current. They're, gonna, they're going to mirror the long-term support version of Linux. Oh, wow. So in in this new version, do you envision that they're going to actually have Linux installed? Or is it, again, you'll go get the Linux that you want? I think you'll go get... Uh, well, I think my I think I remember reading that it would be the same experience. You go to the Windows Store, you pick the Linux you want, and then install the Linux you want. That, that just makes my brain spin in place. I know. You go to the Windows Store and get Linux. That is just... That is yeah. earth-shattering to me that that exists. Yeah, I would yeah. have never predicted that. Before we run out of time, I also want to tell you I'm really excited about something else they announced today. The bloody command cmd.exe is finally being replaced by something that doesn't suck. (laughs) 
So Microsoft are also doing a completely open source terminal app. It's going to be one very pretty looking terminal app with multiple tabs. And in that same terminal app, you can run DOS, so your old cmd.exe style stuff. You can run PowerShell, and you can run all of these Unix or Linuxy things. So wow. one app for everything command line. So I want to speak Bash. Fine, new tab, Bash. I want to. I want to have this really old bat file. I need to run. No problem. New tab DOS. I want to run this fancy pants new PowerShell script to interact with Office three six five and all the cool new Microsoft stuff. No problem. Here's the PowerShells, all in the one app, all together, all with the one UI. And it's, so I want to get, and it's and it's pretty too, right? It's pretty, really good typography. So happy. The uh, a couple of things I want to sneak in here. Um, you kind of kind of snaked what my first thought when I heard this was. Oh my gosh, now the Windows people can all all go listen to Taming the Terminal. Because this is, you wouldn't have to say, well, and if you're on, on Windows, you can kind of do it. You know, Bart yeah. tried really hard to keep them included, to be inclusive. But now it's like, now just go take Taming the Terminal. Everything you need to know is is you've got access to it now. Yeah. Um, Scrap that Ubuntu, thing. or it's, there's a couple, of, yeah, like I said, there's a bunch of different Linux histories. Grab the Linux history you want, and away you go, you have a bash shell. Have all the fun you want. Yeah. Um, the second thing I thought of was, this must make Bart so happy. I mean, you because you're on Windows a lot now, right? Well, a lot is perhaps an overstatement, but it, I do, yes. I mean, once a day, every perhaps. day at least, I end up on my Windows 10 VM. So you're right. Yeah, I suppose that cancels a lot. So Actually, yes. oh, wait a minute. So you're on a Windows 10 VM on a Mac? Oh, no, no. The VM is running in the cloud. I'm just accessing, oh, okay. in the I'm cloud? Just accessing so, over... <laughs> I'm accessing over Microsoft Remote Desktop for Mac, which is, again, a Microsoft product, which runs really nice. This is even better. So so you're on a Mac using Microsoft Remote Desktop to get to a Windows VM in the cloud in which you can run Linux. Yeah, and the cloud is actually powered by Red Hat Enterprise <laughs> Linux. So I went to the Mac so App Store. you pass store, in and out. Right, the Mac App Store to get the Microsoft client to connect to the Windows VM running in the Red Hat cloud environment. <laughs> How's that for cross-platform? In, in in order to run Linux. Yes. Well, actually, I am now because I needed to debug some stuff and the DOS prompt was really driving me potty. Because the DOS prompt, you can't change to a network drive. You can't go CD space backslash backslash some file share. It goes, UNC paths are not supported in the command shell. It's like, ah, but I need to debug something on a share. <laughs> Oh, this is this is fantastic. I, I, I love this. You know, I had more to say, but I can't leave it any better than, than this last bit that you said about going to the Mac App Store to get the Microsoft client, to get to Red Hat Cloud, to get to Windows VM, to run Linux. That is just that is just superb. I love it. Well, we it really is. Everybody, you know, uh, dogs and cats landing down together. I mean, everybody's happy now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was uh, exactly what I was hoping for. I thought it was cool, but I couldn't tell exactly how cool. And this is definitely, definitely uh, the future is here. Excellent. Well, I'm happy to share my, my joy because I, I really pricked up when I saw these announcements this morning. So it, it's good to share. All right. Well, we'll talk to you uh, next week. Indeed. Until then, happy computing. In 2017, on the show, for some reason, I mentioned a listener who went by the handle Skamar, and for some reason, I asked what that person's real name was. I got a lovely email as a result from Aristides Skamagakis from Greece, telling me that he'd been listening since 2010. Now, remember my list earlier of all the ways you can interact with me and how much they all mean to me? 
Well, this lo- lovely letter where Aris said, or Aris said, you fill every Monday morning with your wonderful podcast, that those words just absolutely made my day. Then in 2018, he sent in a dumb question. And in 2019, he sent in a correction when I said something dumb. Now this week, Aris has become a Patreon member. The only thing he's missing in his list is attending the live show. But in his very first message, he explained the difficulties of watching a show at 3 a.m. his time. In any case, I want to say thank you so much, Aris, for your wonderful contributions over the years and making a pledge to support the show financially at podfeet.com slash Patreon. You rock. If you've been listening to or reading my content for the last few years, you know I'm crazy about the WiseCam security cameras. They first came to my attention when Joe LaGreca told me about them when we hung out at CES a few years ago. The original WiseCam is a tiny cube of a camera. It's like two inches on a side and only costs $25 after shipping. The 1080p video is incredibly good. They stand on an articulated base so you can point them where you want. And they have 15 days of free cloud storage or you can use a micro SD card with them. Then Wise came out with the WiseCam Pan. This camera is a taller rectangle but can pan around on a schedule or on demand from their app. It costs a bit more, but it's still stupid inexpensive at $37 with free shipping on Amazon. I wrote an article about my addiction to Wise cameras when that one came out. Now I have three original Wise cams and one Wise cam pan. In early April, Wise announced that they're getting into the sensor business. When we got the ring alarm system for our house, Steve really wanted a sensor to tell him if we'd remembered to close the garage door. But putting one of the ring sensors on the garage door created this weird no-person's-land inside the garage where there was an alarm sensor on both doors, so on either side of you. The sensors announced by Wise, called Wise Sense, would have several advantages. I knew they'd be inexpensive and yet of good build quality with great software. In the marketing for Sense, they demonstrated how tiny they would be by showing you could put a Sense on a dog food container so you'd know when someone fed the dog or at least teased the poor thing with an open container. I jumped on the opportunity to order a Wise Sense starter pack on day one, not realizing that I had joined what they called the Early Access Group. Evidently, they only had a small number of pre-orders available, and I got into the first batch. That will become important later in the story. For a grand total of $20 with the starter pack, you get two Wise sensors, a motion detector, and a wireless bridge all in this teeny tiny box. It's like twice the thickness of an AirPods case and about the same dimensions around, maybe a little bit bigger. For comparison's sake, the sensors we got for our doors and windows from Ring are $20 a piece. So this is $20 for two Wise sensors, a motion detector, and a wireless bridge. The entire sensor starter pack or wise sense starter pack fits in the palm of my hand. Now, sensors like uh, like these don't have Wi-Fi built into them for many reasons. They'd be bigger, more expensive, and they wouldn't get good battery life. Instead, the manufacturers sell you a wireless bridge. The sensors talk to the bridge, and then the bridge talks to your router, which then gives you access at and away from home. The design of the wise bridge is positively genius. On every WiseCam, there has always been a USB port, but they never provided an explanation for why it's there. The Wise Bridge that comes with the starter pack plugs into any WiseCam via USB. It actually sort of completes the back of the camera so that all you see is a small cloth tether to pull it back out. 
If you've got multiple Wise Cams as I do, you can move the bridge between cameras until you get the optimal wireless coverage for your home. Once the bridge is installed, you can start initializing the sensors much the way you would their cameras. In the Wise app, you select Add New Device, choose whether it's one of the camera models, a sensor, or a motion sensor, and give it a name, and you're done. Now on the home screen of the app, you can see all of your cameras, sensors, and motion detectors. We put one of these Sense sensors on our garage door. Remember when we did this with the ring sensor, on top of creating the no man's or no person's land in our alarm system, the sensor was actually so large it was very hard to place properly so that it would stay on the door and not get knocked off when the garage door opened. It wasn't trivial to, pay, to place the diminutive Y-Sense sense either, but by rotating one side, Steve was able to get it in place, and it's been working properly ever since. With our notifications turned on for all of our Y sensors, we now get several new alerts. We're notified when the garage door opens, when it closes, and probably most importantly, we get a notification if the door has been left open for 30 minutes. You can also tell at a glance if a sensor is certainly open right within the app. In the Wise app, you can choose which of these notifications to get and how long a sensor is open before you want a notification. I really like the granularity of all those options. In the ad for Sense, as I mentioned, they show putting a sensor on something as small as a pet food container. Think about it. If you've got somebody supposedly feeding your pets while you're away, you could get a notification when that container was open and closed. Now, maybe that isn't a use case you have, but I bring it up again to illustrate that these sensors can be used for much more than doors and windows. Now, I'm not saying anything against the ring sensors. They are doing a completely different uh, function. You know, they're going to set off an alarm. But these Y-Sense sensors are so small, you can put them all kinds of places. Maybe a liquor cabinet could be monitored when when your teenagers are home alone for a weekend. I mean, not that your kids would do something wrong, of course. Well, I'm a big fan of setting up automation sequences in HomeKit, but I got to tell you, every time I set up a new automation, it takes me hours to get back into the hang of how they work and how you make them go and the different terminology. With the Wise software, it could not have been easier to set up automations. So Wise has shortcuts, actions, and automations. Let me do a couple of simple examples to illustrate how easy these are to create. Let's say when you close your bedroom door, you want to activate the two downstairs camera cameras, but not the upstairs camera, and you want to get a notification from the app. You create a shortcut and call it, say, nighttime. Once a shortcut is created, you add actions to it. Under universal actions, you can turn on app notifications. Then under device actions, you can drill down into each camera and tell the app what the action wants wants it to take place. In our example, we can turn on two cameras and turn off the third. Now you could just stop here and tap the nighttime shortcut button you now have on the home screen, but let's get fancier. You could toggle on automation within that shortcut and then choose one of the two options. You can have the shortcut triggered by a time of day or by an event. An event can be the closing of a sensor you put on the bedroom door. I was able to create a fully functioning automation similar to this scenario without reading any instructions because the screens are so very easy and very clear and easy to follow. You can also trigger events when something more serious occurs. All wise cams automatically detect the sounds of smoke and carbon monoxide detectors in your home, made by other manufacturers. Evidently, these sounds are standardized across devices. So you could have cameras and notifications turn on when any of the cameras detect those emergency sounds. You can also have this happen when they detect any sound or motion. 
I created a test shortcut using one of the sensors I got in the starter pack. I simply had all of the cameras turn off whenever the sensor was opened and turn on again when it was closed. Now, I have found that the app wasn't 100% consistent in changing the icon next to each camera to show that it was off or on. Some would toggle to off, but some would not. Again, that's the graphic. But if I tapped into each camera, I could verify that they definitely did turn off when that action took place. So these sensors are really new, and the time the, the people at WISE, this team there, is really responsive about sending out updates, so I'm sure they'll get the graphics stabilized soon. The important thing, again, is that the, the devices really do obey the automation rules, even if the screen doesn't always update immediately. One thing that's been in the back of my mind is I've enjoyed the fabulous software and incredibly low prices of the WISE hardware, is whether these devices are actually secure. Bart tuned, tuned us into the fact that recently on Security Now with Steve Gibson and Leo Laporte, Steve gave his approval of the WISE security model. The context of the discussion was that Steve and Leo were talking about the fact that some vendors use cheap and low power as an excuse to take security sh- shortcuts in their design. Scooter X from the chat room asked them to, to comment on WISE. Leo and Steve then talked about how even though WISE cameras are cheap and they do have low power, they do security correctly. Leo pointed out that WISE uses TLS AES 128-bit encryption to protect the security of the live stream and playback data, and that every device has its own secret key and cert so they can validate the security during a handshake. Steve Gibson's response to hearing this read out was, wow, that's what you want. He went on to say, rip those D-Link suckers out by the roots. Yes, yes, yes. I particularly like Steve's last line because that's exactly what I did when I learned about the Wise Camps from Joe LaGreca. I threw away my $100 D-Link camera and I replaced it with the $20 Wise Cam. If you'd like to hear Steve and Leo's conversation for yourself, Bart gave us a link to the Security Now episode starting at the exact section where they talked about this, and it's in the show notes. Remember I told you that I got in on the pre-orders for the Wise Sense starter pack? Well, this week, they sent out an email to the Early Access Group inviting us to attend a virtual happy hour with the WISE team. One of the big advantages of being retired is you can say yes to goofy ideas like this. Mike, the product manager for WISENSE, held the event on YouTube, and it was really fun. He dragged his laptop all around the company offices, and he introduced us to people. It was super dorky because it was just people working and this guy making us wave at at them, wave at us on uh, on the camera. Throughout the tour, he would answer questions we were typing in, which was great. At one point, I demanded to see Max, the guy I interviewed at CES about some of their products, so Mike actually broke into a meeting just so Max had to wave at us. I love that. Besides being good old goofy fun, we got a lot of early access information. This is not private information now, but it was news when they told us on Monday. Here's the juicy information that got me excited. The Ysense starter kit I talked about went on sale again on the 8th of May, and if you want in, you should probably order sooner rather than later. They explained that the first shipments that are just on sale right now, hopefully it's still available when you're listening to this, those came by air, but the next batch will be delivered by ship, so they're going to be delayed for several weeks. So get in on it now. Let's see, uh, soon they're going to begin starting uh, selling to sell a four-pack of sensors for just 20 bucks. Now, remember, you do need the starter kit first because you need to get the bridge. They're going to be selling the motion sensors individually for only $6. This is, I mean, that's just crazy. 
Somewhere, uh, someone in the audience asked about the protocol for communication between the sensors back to the bridge, and Mike told us that it was sub-1G, which I took to mean below 1 gigahertz, and he said that it's a proprietary protocol. They didn't do like Z-Wave or any of those. Someone asked about battery life on the sensors, and he said it would be, you know, around 12 months in normal use. And then he said, well, if you do something crazy like putting on your garage door that's like opening and closing all the time, that life might be shorter. Yeah, well, anyway, at five bucks a piece in the four pack, I assume that battery pack isn't uh, replaceable. So we'll probably have to buy extra sensors after those die. The coolest thing they told us is they're going to be doing a wise smart bulb that will work with Google Alexa and IFTTT. Mike even demonstrated it. He said it would be 800 lumens, which is the rough equivalent of a 60 watt incandescent bulb. Now, it's not going to do any super fancy stuff, but you can control on, off, and dim along with the color temperature. Like, not a lot of crazy colors, but just a color shift from the blue daylight end towards a soothing amber evening light. They didn't talk about pricing, but Will, the sales guy, said the bulb should be out in time for Father's Day. He said, and I quote, fathers like toys. Well, you know, I couldn't let that go. I piped up in the chat room saying, hey, mothers like toys too. Even grandmothers like toys. He laughed and said, of course they do. We asked about HomeKit, and Mike didn't think the market was big enough for that, but I made a bunch of noise. I just kept yelling HomeKit over and over again, and I think he thought a lot of people said it, and he said, oh, wow, it looks like people do care about HomeKit. Well, I did what I could. We'll see. When asked if they're doing a doorbell, they simply said, yes. That will be interesting to see what the price is on that. Many people want to see an outdoor wise cam. Mike's boss was with him when this question was asked, and his answer was interesting. He said, you know, we could slap the existing one in an enclosure, and that would be easy, but we have a much bigger vision for the outdoors, and we're working on a quite different camera. That's intriguing. If you look out on Amazon, a lot of people sell little cases for them anyway. Some of them look like little birdhouses. They're adorable. They get little roofs over them. I kind of want one. Finally, Mike went to a guy's workstation who was working on getting wise cams to stream to the video version of Google Home. Thinking you wouldn't get an answer, Mike said, hey, when's that going to be available? When's the software going to be done? And the guy said, in a couple of days. <laughs> Mike assumed he was kidding, but the guy reiterated that he has it almost working. So that's really cool. It might be working by now. I wish I had a Google Home video to test it out. You can watch the happy hour video yourself of everything I, I talked about at the link in the show notes. Let's bottom line this one. The whole experience of watching this group of people working and willing to be so very open and transparent about their product development, letting us peek behind the curtain like that, that made me likewise even more. They've got solid hardware, incredibly affordable prices, a good security model, intuitive product development, and the team is open and accessible. Seriously, what more could you want? Check out all of their products at wise.com. Now, you can't get the Wise Sense on Amazon yet, but I do have an affiliate link to Amazon for the Wise Cam and the Wise Cam Pan if you want to go use that. Six years ago, Steve and I adopted a lovely young dog and named her Tesla after the inventor Nikolai Tesla, best known for his contributions to the design of the modern alternating current AC electrical supply system. Now, before we met our dog Tesla, our plan was to name our future dog Higgs after the physicist who predicted the Higgs boson particle. But when we met our new dog, she rolled over under her back to ask us to rub her belly and revealed that she had a Tesla logo on her chest. Well, we really had no, no choice what to name her, right? 
Ever since then, people have been confused when I mentioned Tesla, thinking that I have a Tesla car. Well, that just wasn't in the cards because in 1978, I got my first Honda, and in the ensuing 41 years, Steve and I have never owned a car that was not made by Honda Motor Company. They were great cars, super reliable, but more importantly, our mechanic was Honda Bob. He cared for our cars for so long that we simply could not envision the nightmare of finding a reliable, trustworthy, and fair mechanic for a different type of car. And Bob was unbending. It was only Hondas and Acuras. But Honda Bob passed away recently. And you know what his dying wish was? It was to get a ride in a Tesla. Even though our friend Ron gladly agreed to grant his last wish, sadly, he died before he got his ride. Well, this might sound silly, but I feel like I have Bob's blessing on what I did this week. I bought a Tesla Model 3. In case you're not familiar with the line of all-electric vehicles from Tesla, this is their smaller four-door sedan. Now, I had no real excuse to buy a new car. Even though my car is seven years old, my 2012 Acura TL only has 25,000 miles on it. I am literally that little old lady that only drives to the corner gym and back with my car. It's a gorgeous car. It's in perfect shape. But I wanted a Tesla Model 3. I ordered one weeks ago, and it finally came in this week. The Tesla Model 3 comes in a few different options, costing successively more money. Unlike the old days where electric vehicles could only go 40 miles on a charge, the standard range Model 3 can go 240 miles, which is darn respectable. The long range model has a range of 310 miles, which, I mean, that's as long as any internal combustion engine I've ever owned. By the way, people often use the acronym ICE for internal combustion engine. Well, we've talked about the standard range and the long range models, but there's also one more version called the performance model. You don't get any more range with the performance. Rather, it's more about acceleration. The long-range model's acceleration is a fantastic 0 to 60 miles in 4.4 seconds. But the performance model is an eyeball-smashed-into-the-back-of-your-head acceleration of 3.2 seconds for 0 to 60 miles per hour. Keeping to the old adage of, you know, go big or go home, I went all in and purchased the Tesla Model 3 performance in gorgeous red. This does now prove that I will live to the ripe old age of 122 because I've left no doubt that this is a midlife crisis car. I really did have a good excuse to get the red. Where we live, there are so many black Model 3s. I would have normally gotten black, but they're everywhere. They're all black. Every once in a while, you'll see a blue or a gray one, but you never, I have not ever seen a red one. So I had to do it. Now, I haven't had very much time with the car yet, but as I get to learn the high-tech side of it, I will definitely share what I learn. I can give you a little taste of a few things from just a short time with the car. I'm not going to, I'm going to try really hard not to bore you with a long explanation of everything it can do, but I'm planning on sprinkling out little Tesla tidbits from time to time as I learn about the tech in the car. Note that as I talk about the safety features and auto driving modes for the car, every feature is not available on the lower models. It's part of what you're paying for as you go from standard to long range to performance models. I'm not going to break down which car has which features. All of the features I'm talking about are on the uh, performance, but some of them may be available on the other models. Besides being an all-electric car for helping with uh, saving the planet, and except for the fun of driving a rocket ship in terms of acceleration, the thing I was really looking forward to was having the car automatically slow down, stop, and accelerate for me in stop-and-go traffic. Living in LA, LA, that's just a way of life. 
let me give you an example. We live four miles from our gym, and it usually takes us between 20 and 25 minutes to get there. But it's even worse. One summer, every road was under construction, and it took us as long as 40 minutes to go those four miles. Now, the irony is not lost on me that I sat in traffic for 40 minutes to drive the distance that I actually run when I exercise. I had to read the manual to find out what this automatic stop and accelerate mode is called in the Tesla. This feature is named Traffic Aware Cruise Control. I'm going to probably call it the not hitting stuff and not noticing the the light turn green mode and it drives for you. Anyway, here's how it works. There isn't a standard gear shift down on the console. Instead, it's on what car nerds refer to as a stock on the steering column. Back in the 60s, cars had gear shifts like this on the stock. But the stock for the Tesla has a lot of different gestures for how you control the car. I think of this as being like a magic trackpad with, you know, three-finger drag, four-finger swipe up, five-finger swipe out, all those different gestures. That's what the stock on the steering column is like. So normal gear shifts have park at the top, then reverse, then neutral, then drive. With the Tesla stock, you actually flip it up to get into reverse. To go into park, you tap a button inward on the end of the stock. Now, now is where it gets very magic trackpad-y. Tap down lightly and the car goes into neutral. Tap down like you mean it and you get drive. Isn't that weird? But there's even more about this tapping down on the stock. Let's say you're tooling along and drive on the, in slow traffic. Another single tap down on the stock will switch the car into traffic-aware cruise control. That's the not hitting things mode. It's, I got to tell you, it, that mode is really spectacular, I have to say. On the 17-inch, giant 17-inch touchscreen, you tell it how many seconds you want between you and the car ahead of you, with the default being three seconds. From the moment you do the double tap, the car will slow down and stop with the cars in front of you, and it will accelerate as soon as they go. And if you live in an area where there is ever an instance where there's no car in front of you, it will stop accelerating when you reach the posted speed limit. I got to tell you, this mode, it's positively magical. It doesn't in any way relieve you from the need to steer and pay attention. It just takes out that dreadful tedium of brake and accelerate 3,248 times in three miles on the 405 southbound freeway at 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. Anyway, that's what it's like. I'm not kidding you. But uh, the, the, the Tesla people are quite specific on the screen explaining traffic aware cruise control that it is completely unaware of traffic lights. So if you're coming up on a light and there's no car in front of you, that car will just breeze right through if you don't take control. I, I do have to keep emphasizing, though, in this mode, you are very aware that you're still the one driving and it's just helping out with a boring task for you along the way. Traffic Aware Cruise Control, TACC, is listed as a beta feature, and the screen explaining it was interesting. It says that if this was a feature of a smartphone, they would never call it a beta feature, but with an automobile, they figure a bit more caution might be required. Sounds kind of like the people who make laws about cars and driving made them call it beta to me, and I support those people 100%. Now, if you thought I was done done with the tapping down gestures on the stock, you'd be wrong. There's also a driving mode called Auto Steer, and I'm pretty sure that is one of the things only on the higher-end models, but you get into that mode by double-tapping down if you're in normal drive or single-tapping down if you're already in traffic-aware cruise control. When the car begins self-steering, it's a little bit unsettling to say the least. If you try to lightly steer yourself, the wheel will actually resist you. 
But if you firmly take control, it will yield to your demands. So you do get to drive if you want to, but it kind of goes, no, no, I got this, if you first start to try to turn the wheel. But the really crazy thing that you can do with auto steer is if you turn on your turn signal, the car will look around at all of the sensors, cameras, radar sensor, and ultrasonic sensors for situational awareness. It will use that data to see if there's already a car in the lane you've requested to move into and only move into the new lane when it can safely do so. But it does it by itself. You turn on the turn signal and you wait and it changes lanes for you. I tested it out on day one. I figured I better you know, face that challenge, uh, that uh, fear the first day. And it worked, but it did scare the daylights out of me. You see, there was a car coming up on my left and it judged the acceleration of that car and it punched it to zoom ahead of the other car. I'm not saying I wouldn't have done the same thing. And in LA traffic, you do have to take all opportunities, but it was still crazy to think of the amount of math that went into that maneuver. I mentioned the 17-inch touchscreen, which is the centerpiece of the car. It's the centerpiece because it's gorgeous, but also because there aren't many controls that aren't on the screen. The dash is completely sleek and uninterrupted other than that screen. There aren't even air vents that are visible or that you can move around with your hands. Instead, on screen, you see a little fan symbol, and when you tap that, you get a visual representation of how the air is flowing out of that long slit across the entire dash. For the driver and passenger separately, you can use your fingers to pinch in and out to narrow and widen the air and rotate it up and down. For an iPad user, it's pretty natural, but it's still pretty crazy to think that's how you're controlling the car. The only physical controls on the car are two little scrolly dials on the steering wheel. The left one moves the mirror and changes the position of the steering wheel, but only after you've used the touchscreen to get into those modes. That same dial controls your audio playback, raising and lowering volume with the roller, stopping and playing with a click, and then a click left or right to go forward and back in a podcast. They tell me it also skips track on music, but I wouldn't know about that. I told you there's two scrolly wheels. I don't know what the second one is for yet, but I'm going to learn. There is one thing that's now very problematic in our house, and it's the confusion of having two Teslas in the house. Several times in the last few weeks as we worked on the purchase of the new car, Steve and I became confused about what the other person was talking about. We were taking Tesla to the vet, figuring out which wheels we wanted for the Tesla and planning on who would take care of Tesla when we go to Steve's parents' house when we drive the Tesla to see them. See what I mean? It's a little hard. Steve drove my car to go pick up the new car and uh, then I drove behind him on the way home. Traffic was pretty awful and it was a long drive, so I had a lot of time to experience with how the car drove in stop-and-go traffic. Before we left the Tesla dealer, we paired both of our phones to the car. I have to say it was glorious how easy it was to do. I love Hondas and Acuras, but pairing a phone to their cars is a nightmare. I usually spend over an hour trying to do it and then finally Steve steps in and he spends another half hour until he beats it into submission. On Teslas, it's a matter of two or three taps on the touchscreen with super obvious instructions, and you're done. I tried the navigation built into the car, and while it worked pretty well, there was one thing I didn't like. On any Bluetooth-capable car, if you use any navigation software on your phone while playing music or a podcast from that same device, the phone will automatically duck down the audio from the music or or the podcast when the navigation needs to tell you about an upcoming turn. Makes complete sense. But the Tesla's built-in nav system just is oblivious to the fact that it's competing with Bluetooth audio coming from a phone, and it keeps both volumes the same. 
Tesla doesn't support CarPlay, so you can't have any other nav system but theirs on that gorgeous display. The other alternative is to use the built-in access to tune-in radio, which includes podcasts, and that's through that big screen. That could work well for a long drive where you're sure you'll finish a show before you get home, but if you're on shorter drives listening to longer podcasts, you'd have to hunt down where you stop the show and set it to that on your phone or do all of your podcast listening via uh, tune-in. But what if you want your podcast player? I gave up on this as I drove home and I just used Bluetooth to listen on my phone and it did navigation via Waze on my phone. So here I am, tootling along, I hit the turn signal and my podcast stopped. Well, that's, that's kind of weird. I clicked the scroll wheel on the steering wheel and after a little while, I and, and it started back up, but a little while later, I had my hand near the turn signal and again, the audio stopped. Then Steve, who was driving directly in front of me, called me from uh, from the Acura. He was driving in front of me and we had a heck of a time talking to each other. I'd hear a few words and then he wouldn't hear me. We tried several times with me calling him and him calling me and it was super dodgy. I was really bummed that the audio was all messed up and the Bluetooth was totally messed up on this car. Then I figured it out. My phone was still paired to my Acura, so the phone was simply jumping over to the car Steve was driving. Steve figured out on his end around the same time I did when he heard my voice coming in from inside his car, the car that he was driving. Anyway, we both had a good laugh about it, and I was really happy to know it wasn't something broken in my brand new baby. I want to give a big shout out to Rod Simmons of the SMR podcast. He bought a Model X for himself and later surprised his wife with a Model 3. He talks about electric vehicles a lot on their podcast and Teslas in particular. I told him I was getting tempted to just test drive a Model 3 and he cautioned me. He said, do not do it. He said, if you drive it, you're going to buy it. Now, I didn't want other people to influence my decision on this car. So Steve and I didn't tell anyone we were considering the purchase except for Rod. We threw tons of questions at him, and he was a font of information. He taught us how to find charging stations that are specifically for Teslas, called superchargers, but more importantly, showed us all of the other types of chargers available on the road these days, and how to optimize your trips to hit them at convenient times in easy locations. He taught us about accessories to buy, because clearly the cost of that car alone was not enough. He helped us to understand the different options. He helped clarify things that my awful salesperson had incorrectly explained. Seriously, Manny was categorically not my little friend. Anyway, Rod never pushed me to do it, but rather gave me the information I needed to make an informed decision. One of the things he told me up front was to expect some glitches. He wasn't specific about it, but he said to expect some odd things that will make you say, well, that shouldn't happen. They wouldn't be safety issues, but eh, annoying little glitches. I think I know what he means now. When we went to the gym with the new car, we got to show it to our good friend Dorothy, the one you heard me talking about on Programming by Stealth all the time. I took her for a quick spin around the block, and on that quick trip, she tried to play with the touchscreen, but it didn't respond to her. I wasn't sure what was going on because I was driving and I couldn't play with it at the time, of course. But I did notice that when she was trying to tap on it, my turn signal didn't make any noise. Then suddenly, the screen went black and rebooted. Now, to be clear, the actual driving of the car was not impacted. The steering wheel worked, the accelerator worked, and more importantly, the brakes worked. But I have to say, having every other thing in the car just simply disappear at once was quite disconcerting. I remember my father had a saying, everyone goes when the whistle blows. He also said in reference to electric windows replacing wind-up windows, just one more thing to go wrong. I could just hear him in my head, and he'd have been right. <laughs> 
Now, I'm not ready for a bottom line yet on the car, other than I'm so giddy and excited. And, uh, but like I said, I'll be giving you little fun tech stories about how Teslas work over time. Sadly, I can't give you an Amazon affiliate link to the car, but I do have an affiliate link to Tesla. It doesn't give you a discount on a new car, and I don't get a percentage of what you spend, but it does give you a thousand free miles of supercharging and gives me the same if you use it to buy your car. I felt terrible that I didn't remember to use rods when I bought my car. But then I did some math on what that uh, that thousand miles is worth. Turns out a thousand miles on a supercharger is about 68 bucks. I told Rod, I'll buy a $68 dinner next time I see you. Anyway, that cost is pretty crazy, isn't it? Gas around here is uh, around four bucks a gallon right now. And if you got as much as 30 miles per gallon, a thousand miles would cost you 130 miles or double the cost of charging the, uh, the Tesla for a thousand miles. One question I've been asked a lot is whether the rebates from the government are still available, and they are. They're being phased out, though, and you know, it makes sense. You create incentives to help people make the right decisions. But as of August, the Tesla Model 3, Model 3 has become the fifth best-selling car in America. So it's clear people don't actually need incentives to buy electric cars anymore. Well, I'd love to talk about this more, but I want to go drive my new car now. Well, if I'm going to go play with my car, I better wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, the way Aris did. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you want to do starts with podfeet.com. You can become a patron like Aris did this week by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you want to join our Facebook or Slack groups, that's podfeet.com slash Facebook or podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like uh, Ian Lessing did after being gone for a while, and Ian Prince End did after being gone for a while, we had a pair of Ians in here. You can do that by heading over to podfeed.com on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time, but not next week. Next week will be Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And when you do that, you could join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.